timing of meals sometimes feels like a really delicate dance because you want to make sure you're fueling your body, but you don't want to eat so close to a workout where you're going to like get an upset stomach. So it really goes back to the science of how your body digests certain nutrients. So we think about the three macronutrients, carbohydrates, protein, and fat. Your body breaks down carbohydrates the quickest, and this is the energy that's mainly going to fuel you during a workout. Hey, it's Ben Wise, and this is The Fitness Movement. The Fitness Movement is brought to you by Zor Fitness. Zor Fitness is my company and my platform to deliver training content to coaches and athletes like you. The site has educational resources on everything from program design and exercise physiology to skill progressions and movement breakdowns. And in terms of programming, we have our online training program, The Protocol, and I also offer one-on-one remote coaching. It's all at one place, ZorFitness.com. Today we have Sarah Sophia on the show. She is a registered dietitian nutritionist and she is licensed in the state of Pennsylvania. She went to Carson Newman University for undergrad and is doing her further education at Cedar Crest College. And currently she's working as the food service coordinator for Warrior Run School District. You can read her blog at giftofgoodnutrition.wordpress.com. On Instagram, you can follow her at Sophia underscore rdn and on facebook at sarah sophia so today's conversation varies a lot one of the things that i wanted to make sure we talked about right at the beginning was what was the difference between a nutritionist and an rdn so a registered dietitian nutritionist and then we get into sarah's job now which is meal planning and preparation for a school district and sarah's doing a really cool thing with their school where they have a garden and they're going to be adding a greenhouse And that can actually provide some of the vegetables that goes into the meals that the students are actually going to eat. So naturally, we get into how to cook vegetables to make them more appealing to picky eaters like kids, or if you're someone who eats like a kid, (laughs) and how to actually best prepare those items so that you're maximizing your nutrition content out of them. So what preparation method is going to be best in terms of raw versus cooking versus different types of cooking? What's going to be best there? And then we get into the timing of meals around a workout and basically what's the ideal macronutrient profile of a meal, or maybe we should call it a snack before or after a workout. So if you're someone who's dealt with maybe low blood pressure or low blood sugar, um, maybe before going into or maybe even a little bit after a workout, I think this is going to be extremely helpful for you. Also, we get into sodium intake and if that's something that an active person should actually be concerned about limiting. Sarah is a wealth of knowledge, and I'm super excited for you to hear this one. So without further ado, let's get into this conversation with Sarah Sophia. Sarah, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Ben. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, thanks for jumping on. (laughs) So if I've got this right, um, you kind of grew up in the kitchen, and you were around your grandmothers a lot teaching you, and not one but two of them were Italian. Is that right? (laughs) That's correct. So both my grandmothers are 100% Italian. So I grew up spending days with them in the kitchen and learning a lot of fun techniques. So my foundation in nutrition dietetics comes from spending time with them in the kitchen and being really fun and creative. Yeah, two Italian grandmothers is a pretty good foundation in terms of your, your cooking expertise level. So I'm sure you started way higher than 
what most people are <laughs> exposed to. I can imagine that like, just like so many of the, the little, you know, tips and tricks and all the, you know, there's, there's so much more to food than just like, you know, this is what goes into it in terms of like the ingredients and, you know, this is how you prepare it. It's just like, I don't know. There's a lot to be, to learn and clean from just hanging around people that are older than you and getting a lot of experience from them. Yeah. And I think it really shows that food is more than just eating the ingredients. It builds community and relationships and fosters those lifelong friendships as well. Yeah, for sure. I mean, that's one of the things I know you've talked about is like food is not just like nourishment. It's also like a social thing. There's also like, you know, emotional, spiritual components. Like there's a lot that goes into it. And, you know, I think for a lot of people, you know, they have these goals around food that are maybe not related to, you know, just it being a, a social thing or just it being a nourishment thing. There's like, there's a complicated interplay of like, okay, maybe I have this one goal, but then there's other things that are still important aspects of me being a human being around food that often get missed when someone's trying to count their macros, for example. Mm, Absolutely. I actually want to start I don't always go through sort of chronologically, but I think it'll be helpful. Um, and I want to tie some of the conversation in with this. Um, tell us about your schooling process, what it looked like for you specifically, like where you went and all that, but then also like, what does, you know, going to become a, like a registered dietitian, what does that process look like for most programs? Kind of walk us through that. Absolutely. So I am a registered dietitian nutritionist and I am licensed in the state of Pennsylvania. So in order to get that credentialing, I went to a four-year undergraduate school in East Tennessee called Carson Newman University. And I got a bachelor's of science in foods, nutrition, and dietetics. And this program had to be accredited by the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics. Um, And these classes involved a lot of science. So I was like two classes short, double majoring in science. Um, Oh, wow. (laughs) Yeah. So it's a lot of chemistry, biology, anatomy, and all those types of courses. But then you also have food labs, which was so much fun. Um, And then after I graduated from my undergraduate degree, I had to apply for a dietetic internship. And this was 1,200 supervised practice hours. So it took me um, about a year to complete. And I did that through Cedar Crest University or Cedar Crest College in Allentown, Pennsylvania. And in those 1,200 hours, I had to do rotations in clinical dietetics, food service management, and community. So it's a really holistic approach to being able to serve a lot of different populations through food and nutrition. Not to interrupt you, but I'm going to interrupt you. Yeah, <laughs> um, do. So like, take us through, like, is, is that a normal process for like um, you to have like those three different rotations that you go through? And if we're to be like that 1200 hours, is that sort of standard for to become an RDN? Yeah. So to sit for the registered dietitian's exam, I had to complete 1200 hours and you have to do a certain amount of hours in each realm of nutri- nutrition. So that would be food service, community, and then medical nutrition therapy. Um, but there, each different internship can have a different focus. Uh, so I focused in food service management community. But if you want to go a more clinical route, you can just find the dietetic internship that works for you. It is pretty competitive. 
when I applied, I think it was like a 65% acceptance rate. Uh, But when I was a freshman in college, it was 50%. So it has become a little um, easier to get into because there's more programs now. But it is a competitive Mm. field if you're looking to become a dietitian. Yeah. So, I mean, obviously, this is one of the things we want to talk about is one of the things that I wanted to bring up because I think, you know, there's a very clear distinction between someone who's into nutrition, who maybe has a weekend certification in nutrition somehow versus someone who went to school and completed a 12 month internship and did the whole thing. Right. So, you know, in terms of like language that people can use legally around that, um, Mm -hmm. kind of walk us through, obviously you are again, an RDN, which is Mm -hmm. a registered dietitian nutritionist, right. Um, to just say someone is like a nutritionist. Um, is there any, like anything like legally binding about any of that? So if you're a nutritionist, you probably got a certification that took a few weeks or a few months, and you can call yourself a nutritionist if you have that certification. But given the time of study, nutritionists don't have as, well, I don't want to knock nutritionists. because some You of can them say, just say some nutritionists, right? Yeah. <laughs> There's people that are in that bucket that are, that are quality, you know, health yes. coaches or or whatever. Absolutely. Right. But there's also people who are not quality. It's the same with the coaching field because you don't yeah. need any credentials to be a coach. Right. So yeah, go ahead. Speak freely. <laughs> <laughs> the difference really comes down to the level of education. So to be a registered dietitian nutritionist, like I said, you have at least an undergrad, you go through a 12 month internship and starting in 2024, you're going to have to have a master's degree as well. And master's doesn't have to be in nutrition. Like I'm getting a master's in business, um, but you are going to be required to have that another level of school. And then when you pass your registered dietitian exam, every five years, you have to get 70 continuing education classes because as the research continues to shift and change in our profession. We want to make sure we're up to date with the research and we're giving our patients and clients the best nutrition recommendations that we can. And a lot of times those nutrition recommendations are evidence-based and they're backed by a lot of research studies. Um, And then I would say to that point as well, if you're someone who's looking for nutrition counseling or nutrition advice, a registered dietitian nutritionist is going to give you a lot more holistic approach in the sense that we can look at your medical lab results, your family history, your medical history in general, and tie that into your nutrition goals and what you're eating and your exercise plan and if supplements and all that kind of stuff. So just like a wide knowledge base in regards to overall health specific to nutrition, where a lot of nutritionists probably don't have that type of training. Yeah. It's really interesting. There's all so much more requirements in terms of schooling, in terms of you know, having this wide base of knowledge to be able to, you know, yeah, most would be appropriately, you know, even you're still going to have opinions, but like to have mm-hmm. more of your, your basis, like, okay, this is what the science is, right. That's going to be largely unchanging. And like, you know, this is how we can interpret this in terms of how we should best fuel you or, you know, Mm -hmm. whatever. But at the same time, you know, if you don't have that base, it's really hard to have what you're recommending being grounded in something that's actually scientific versus just your 
your opinion or what, you know, the person who has your certification or whatever thinks is a good idea. Absolutely. And nutrition is so individualistic, like what you eat can affect different people in such different ways. And a dietitian has a lot of knowledge in regards to what is going to work best for you long-term. Yeah. Agreed. Cool. I think that's a really helpful clarification that again, I, I think, you know, several years ago, I didn't know that. And mm-hmm. I think probably a lot of people listening still don't understand it. They're like, Oh, dietitian, nutritionists, they're interchangeable things, you know, and they maybe don't understand the certifications and the requirements and all that. So I think that is really helpful for people listening. Um, so you went to school, graduated, and now you're working at um, Warrior Run School District, which is a small school district in North Central Pennsylvania for people listening and probably aren't aware. Um, <laughs> just how we know each other. You're both in Williamsport. And um, tell us a little bit about what you're doing now at the school district and sort of maybe what a week looks like for you. Yeah, so I actually wanted to become a registered dietitian because I believe that good um, nutrition is the foundation for overall health and wellness. And in my clinical rotation, I saw so many people who were suffering from diabetes and heart disease and hypertension, and they had these diseases because they weren't eating nutrient-dense foods their life, and it eventually caught up with them. So in my profession, I wanted to work to help end and prevent these health concerns and empower students with the knowledge and the resources to fuel their body the best that they can to support their overall health. So I kind of found that career path with working in schools. And specifically, as Ben mentioned, I work at Warrior Run right now. Um, So in that district, I'm the food service coordinator. So my boss is the food service director, and then I am the position um, below him. So I get to specifically focus on a lot of menu planning, which is my favorite part of my job. Um, So I make the breakfast and lunch menus for um, the district and the government um, put out standards for the national school breakfast and national school lunch program. Um, So for every meal, we have to offer a fruit, a vegetable, milk, a grain, and a meat or meat alternative. They also have sodium restrictions and calorie standards. So when I put the menu together, it's like fitting a puzzle together, making sure I get all these components on the menu or within our nutrition standards. And then that it's a meal that students are actually going to want to eat and that they're going to enjoy eating it, um, which can be tricky. (laughs) Yeah, definitely not a, an easy task, you know, combining, you know, something that you think is actually going to be interesting and valuable and, you know, something that they're going to actually like, and then also has to meet the standards that are placed on you from the government. So it's yeah. like, you know, I, I keep comparing everything back to when I was a teacher. Cause you know, you have the state standards of, okay, you can, you know, as long as you meet these and check these boxes, you can basically do that however you want. Right. And it's like mm-hmm. for the, for the good teachers, it's like, those are more like restrictions than anything else. Right. Because it's like, you know, you would already do a good job. You would already, you know, make sure that they're learning the important things that they're going to know. And then Mm -hmm. it's like for the people who don't do their job very well, it's like, okay, then it actually might help, you know, hold them to the standard that they would, you know, should be at. But um, yeah, I'm thinking like someone like you, 
it probably feels much more restrictive than it feels helpful. I'm guessing a lot of the time. Yeah, I think that kind of frustrating, especially since um, pizza and fries technically count within those standards. Um, I do think it's a good ideology overall because you want to make sure you're getting all your food groups, but it can easily become like food waste or it's kind of easy to get around the red tape. Um, so in my position, I think feel that it's really important to promote nutrition education in the school system. And our district actually has a garden with about eight different raised beds. And then we're also working on getting a greenhouse. So right now I've had the opportunity to work with fourth and fifth grade students and they plant seedlings in the classroom. And then in the spring, we transfer them to the garden beds and they learn how to take care of the seedlings. And then in the fall, I'll bring them back when they're in the grade um, level up and we'll harvest those garden produce and then make a simple like garden recipe. We made garden fresh salsa last year and the kids really enjoyed it. Um, so I think that's a good example of teaching the kids like this is where your food comes from. These are the nutrients that tomatoes are gonna provide. And then when kids have that feeling that they contributed to making this meal, they're gonna be more likely to eat those that produce. Yeah, that's actually an interesting point that I haven't even thought of before. Like, it's so cool, number one, that you're just able to actually have, you know, plant plants and have, a, you know, potentially a greenhouse and like all these raised beds that you're you're actually having the students be involved in planting it. And then but then by the time they actually go to harvest it, it's like if you put in all that work to be able to plant all that stuff and take care of it all, it's like you're going to eat it then. Like you're going yeah. like, <laughs> to make sure that you actually enjoy it. So that's really cool. I haven't even thought about that. So what are some of the stuff that you guys planted? We do tomatoes, bell pepper, cucumber. Um, we do some more like squash because sometimes it's hard with the academic calendar because sometimes produce is mm. available in the summer when not all the students are there and there's just like summer programs. Um, but if we do more like squash and pumpkins, those are available in the fall for students. We did cantaloupe. That didn't work as well, but I'm going to try again this year. So when you, when you do this and say you harvest it, are you actually, is it like a, maybe more of a side project or is this actually something that you can incorporate into the meals at your school district that you serve in the cafeteria? Ideally, we would have enough produce to add it onto the school menu. With the raised garden beds, we simply didn't grow enough to add onto the menu. Right. I am thinking the greenhouse, we're going to mainly focus on tomatoes and lettuce and that should be able to produce a decent amount year round that we could add um, specifically to the high school menus. But for now, the raised beds, it's mainly like a, a learning opportunity for those students. Yeah. I mean, it's still awesome. It still teaches them like, hey, this is food that you actually can recognize what it is. <laughs> but <Yeah. laughs> if you can't, you know, pick it, pull it, pluck it, you know, you shouldn't be eating it. So um <laughs> You know, just to be able to like have those basics of like, okay, this is food. You can actually recognize what it is. You actually planted it and you're not going to be able to harvest it and you can, you know, make all these different things with it is pretty incredible. Um, yeah. I mean, that's, that's a pretty cool. Well-rounded job in my opinion. <laughs> I love it. It's a good, it's, I really enjoy my job and I'm thankful to be able to work at that school district. So 
as you're thinking about meals, you know, I think one of the things that would probably be really challenging if I'm thinking about the job that you're undertaking and planning all this, you know, again, not just working with the government, not just working with what you have available to you, but then also making the, having the kids actually want to eat it. Like, so for example, if I think back to high school, it was like, you know, kids would eat what, what tasted good and palpable in their opinion. And then basically it was like these canned vegetables that would just get tossed in the trash every single time. Mm-hmm. Um, so like, again, maybe like specifically with like plants, how do you think about incorporating them in a way that's something that the, the kids actually want to eat? Absolutely. So I think a lot of reasons why kids aren't don't enjoy vegetables as much is because they don't taste that great. And sometimes it has to do with the way that they're prepared and flavored. So when it comes to trying to make vegetables more appealing to students or kids in general, I like to think about texture and flavor. Um, so the best texture from vegetables is if you can get fresh, fresh veggies. Um, sometimes we can get those at school, but not always. And when we're comparing fresh vegetables to frozen, they tend to have the same amount of nutrient content um, because with frozen vegetables, you're just blanching fresh ones for like two to three minutes in boiling water and then freezing them. So it keeps and retains all of those nutrients. But when you go to cook them, a lot of times it can be a little more mushy and whatnot. So the best texture is going to be your fresh vegetables. And then I recommend roasting them in the oven. So you want to put it on high, like 400 degrees with like olive oil and some seasoning. And that's going to give it like a crisp texture that's really enjoyable. Um, at our school, we also have a grill. So sometimes we'll grill for lunch and grilled veggies, whether you're at home or at school, will also give it a nice flavor and texture. Or if you're at home and you have an air fryer, I just got an air fryer for Christmas and I've been loving it. That also makes um, the texture a lot more appealing. Yeah. Those are simple things that like the texture is huge. Like when I think about, I think back to the, the stuff that was on that plate in high school, it's like, <laughs> I didn't want to eat that because it, it's all like baby food almost. Like it just kind of like falls yeah. apart in your mouth. So if like you can, like you said, grill it, air fry it, like that's all just texture not even talking about like the seasonings that are on it just the fact that it's got some like crunch or you know some varied texture versus just like yeah like the the blanched kind of semi-soft definitely makes a huge difference right there Mm -hmm. yeah and then flavoring as well at school we're really limited because you can't really add salt to our vegetables because of the sodium restrictions but we've gotten a lot of fun spice blends from different food vendors that have like garlic and onion and Italian seasonings or Parmesan cheese that have added really nice flavor. Yeah. Uh, So for an average person, well, I shouldn't say average. So say, let's say a person who is adequately active, whatever that is, right. You know, a person who, if you look at them, you're like, okay, this person moves around enough. They exercise once in a while. They're, they're generally healthy. Do they need to be worrying about sodium? So sodium is an electrolyte that is really important for muscle movement. Um, So I would say normally it depends on your food preparation. So a lot of 
if you're buying frozen food, that's going to have a lot of sodium. So you probably want to limit that. But if you're cooking a lot of your food at home from scratch and you just add salt um, from your salt, salt shaker and you don't have um, any issues with hypertension or family history of hypertension, I'm not overly concerned. It's mainly when it's processed and like frozen foods that have really high sodium content that I would not recommend. Um, as an athlete though, if you're working out like high intensity for over an hour and it's really hot outside, that's when I would um, say you wanna add um, like salt tablets or electrolyte packets to your water. Um, but if you're not exercising in the high heat, high intensity for over an hour, I'm generally not concerned. Yeah. So, I mean, you, I know you do some like, you know, you do hiking and some of the trail running and some of that kind of stuff that's more on the endurance end of things. Um, so do you supplement with sodium when you're doing that kind of thing? I do. Um, so I'm actually training right now for a 25 K trail run. That's oh, nice. April. Yeah. I'm really excited about it. Also kind of nervous, but <laughs> when I train for that, I'm running a lot of times like one to three hours. Right. So and it's all, it's a lot of elevation changes. So you're going from low elevation to high back to low. And that elevation change with the intensity can cause muscle cramps. And that would occur from an in, sodium imbalance. So I like to add the Noom tab, the yep. N-U-U-M tablets to my water right. um, when I'm training. And then sometimes I'll even take one or two salt tablets. Yeah. Again, I think... Any conversation like this is important to like distinguish who you're talking to. Cause if you're just talking mm -hmm. to, if this is a podcast that goes out to the general public and we're like a healthcare company creating this or something, it's like, you're going to be like, eh, probably like don't add salt to your foods. Don't do this. Cause you know, they're already eating processed foods. They're not sweating yeah. heavily on a regular, regular basis. Like for probably the cross section of people who are listening to us, there's probably more people who are dealing with like salt efficiency where they are doing, you know, double session days and mm -hmm. they're not rehydrating the way that they should be in their, you know, blood pressure drops in between, you know, their sets of back squats because they're, they're not having enough blood volume because they're just dehydrated. So I think, yeah. it, I mean, it's important. I understand why you're hesitant and just kind of giving that general advice, but I think, you know, thinking about who you're talking to before you give the advice is really important. Absolutely. If we're thinking about the people who are listening here, I think we got a lot of people who are generally healthy, who generally eat pretty well. Um, yeah. However, I would say almost across the board, there's still going to be ways that like basic things that people don't do well enough, even if they're generally healthy. So like, mm -hmm. you know, for myself, I eat pretty well. Most of the time I exercise regularly. There's like, I sleep, you know, a, a decent quality and quantity every night. Like I'm pretty good on all those fronts. However, like, for example, one of the things I know I can do a better job at is getting like a variety of vegetables and, uh, you know, prepared in a variety of ways. So again, if we stick on the vegetable thing, cause I think it's really important. It's also sort of a, you know, it's, it's becoming more popular, just like, you know, the plant-based thing, but I also think it's important conversation to have. Um, when you're preparing food for yourself, for, for the students, do you really think about how, like varying how you prepare that food in terms of like giving it to them raw, giving it to them when it's cooked? Um, you know, because they like, for example, if you cook versus you keep it raw, there's going to be different 
bioavailability, you know, minerals, vitamins are all going, you know, shifting. Can you explain sort of how that works and how you, you like to think about it for yourself or for your students? Absolutely. So when we're talking about bioavailability, that's the amount of nutrients that your body is actually able to digest and absorb from the food that you eat. Um, so when you eat a raw fruit or vegetable, you often are able to digest and absorb all the nutrients that that vegetable can provide. Um, sometimes with certain cooking methods, those vitamins and minerals are destroyed. Um, so when we think about vitamins, there's two types of vitamins. There's water-soluble and there's fat-soluble. So our water-soluble vitamins, vitamins B and C, since they're water-soluble, they can obviously um, leak out during food preparation when you're using water. Um, so if you boil your vegetables for too long, you might lose some of your B and C vitamins. And then fat-soluble vitamins, which are A, D, E, and K, are sometimes destroyed in too high of heat. So when you are roasting your vegetables, you only want, I like to cook, when I roast, I cook them at like 400 degrees Fahrenheit for no longer than 20 minutes. Or the air fryer is really good because you don't, you can cook them for even less time. Um, and then when I'm making like a soup or a stew, I want to make sure I'm adding my vegetables at the end after the protein is pretty much already cooked so that the heat and the water isn't going to compromise um, those vitamins as much. Um, steaming is actually one of the best ways to preserve nutrients in cooked vegetables. But as we mentioned before, sometimes steaming can make your vegetables kind of mushy and that you can like lose color. Um, so it's given taken a lot of different ways. Um, but I would also like to point out when we talk about bioavailability, availability of nutrients. There are certain nutrients that work really well together and complement each other and help your body absorb them better. And then there are other nutrients that you should try and avoid eating together because they're going to block some absorption. So a lot of times, especially like women or athletes, we want to, and adolescents, we want to increase our iron consumption and our body's absorption of iron. So vitamin C actually helps your body absorb iron better. Um, so sometimes if you take iron supplements, it'll that supplement will also have vitamin C in it to help absorb it more. But if you're someone like me, like I like to eat real food before I go to more of the supplement side of things, um, you want to pair that iron with vitamin C. So that might look like pairing red meat with dark green leafy vegetables or red meat with tomato sauce um, or having some citrus fruit or strawberries with your beans, things like that. Um, so you can have salad with um, like taco meat or and have some strawberries on top. Or if you wanna do like rice and beans with lime juice, that will really help absorb the iron. Um, and you also want to be careful because tannins, which are found in caffeine, so your coffee and your tea, are actually going to inhibit iron absorption. So if you're going to take an iron supplement in the morning, you want to make sure it's not around the time that you're drinking coffee. What if you drink coffee all day? <laughs> yeah. 
then you gotta you gotta leave some room there for your iron absorption <laughs> there you go people don't drink coffee all day it's a bad <laughs> idea to drink within i don't know six hours of bedtime anyway probably but yeah, yeah. there's a lot there to unpack uh let's go back a little bit um yeah. i want to hammer the food preparation methods in terms of bioavailability. So steaming is a good option because there's not so much water. Maybe that it like the vitamin B and C, I believe you said, will like basically leak into the water that you would be, for example, if you're like boiling in water. Um, so that's a good option is maybe, for example, if someone has like spinach, right? You can have spinach when it's raw. You can have spinach when it's completely cooked. If you like do half and half, is there any benefit there? Or is it like, you know, if you're going to cook it, cook it all the way. So you have certain minerals, minerals, maybe become available versus eat it raw and have more vitamins available. Is there, is there any way that you think about it? Or you just say like, Hey, eat, eat it the way that you, that tastes good and try to vary that over time. Yeah. So when we talk about like trying to add more veggies into our diet, I want you to enjoy them. So cook your vegetables the way that you're going to eat them most often. And then from that, try and choose a cooking method that's going to preserve the most amount of nutrients. So if you don't like raw spinach, that's okay. Not everyone does. Feel free to like cook it down and steam it. Just don't cook it too long would be my recommendation. Yeah. So if you cook it like really hard, that's where you're starting to, to lose more of the vitamins in particular. Is that correct? Yeah. So high heat can kill um, some vitamins. So you just want to cook it like spinach cooks down really quickly. So it shouldn't take more than like three or four minutes if you're stir frying it on the stove. Right. So I haven't had all the science courses that you have had. (laughs) Um, Like scientifically speaking, is it like, is it denaturing? Like what exactly is happening with, you know, let's take spinach, for example, if there's and vitamins in it that are getting destroyed. What exactly is happening that they're getting destroyed? So they just are like, their structure is changing to the point where your body can't absorb it efficiently. Right. So, okay. Gotcha. So basically the chemical structure is changing enough because of the heat that's applied that now it's a different form than it was before. Yes. Cool. Let's focus more now on the the workout side of things, right? So we have people listening to the fitness movement. Again, I think most of them are exercising regularly, or at least I hope you are, if you listen to this. (laughs) Um, So (laughs) let's, let's go now to nutrition around that, those workout times specifically, right? So we obviously want people fueling enough to, to maintain their, um, you know, support their, their exercise and, you know, I think a lot of those basic things we can probably skip over here and say like, okay, if we're talking specifically about like time to, you know, trying to time your meals appropriately around the workout, let's go like first to like before a workout, um, what types of food should, you know, someone be eating to maybe fuel themselves optimally, what things should they be avoiding? Let's start there. Absolutely. Timing of meals sometimes feels like a really delicate dance because you want to make sure you're fueling your body, but you don't want to eat so close to a workout where you're going to like get an upset stomach. So it really goes back to the science of how your body digests certain nutrients. So we think about the three macronutrients, carbohydrates, protein, and fat. Your body breaks down carbohydrates the quickest, and this is 
the energy that's mainly going to fuel you during a workout. And then protein is broken down the second fastest, and then fat is the slowest. Um, so whenever you um, are going to work out three plus hours before a workout, you can eat all three. Generally, you can eat all three um, macros together. I I don't want to give a affirmative because everyone is different and like you can respond differently to nutrients. So you really want to see what works best for you. But as a general recommendation, three plus hours before a workout, you can combine all your macros. So you can eat like a full sandwich, a regular meal, whatever um, works best for you. And then once we get to within two hours of your workout, you only want to really focus on your protein and your carbohydrates. So that might look like yogurt with berries, cheese and crackers, hummus and veggies, peanut butter crackers, maybe an apple and peanut butter. Some athletes like to have yogurt with um, like low fat milk and fruit. So that would be within two hours. And then within an hour um, and like 30 minutes of your workout, you only want to get carbohydrates because anything else your body's still going to be trying to digest while you work out. And that's going to cause like an upset stomach. Some people throw up because your body can't digest food and work out. It just, that's yeah. not how it's created. Above a reasonable <laughs> intensity anyway. Yeah. yeah 100%. Right. So one of the things that I've experienced, and maybe I'll just turn this into a personal therapy session. Um, <laughs> is that if I, you know, you know, I understand that, okay, I don't want to have too much fat because it's just going to be sitting in my gut when I go to work out. But if I have too many, or maybe not even too many, but it's maybe it's not timed appropriately. Those, those carbohydrates before my workout, I'll often have sort of like rebound hypoglycemia where, you know, basically mm -hmm. my blood sugar spiked because I ate something that was a simple carb because I didn't want to sitting in my stomach before I worked out. And then by the time I got into my session, my blood sugar was dropping and now I'm feeling like, like, like I'm either crashing or I'm getting lightheaded spells, like something like that. Um, is there any way that maybe someone could avoid the, those sorts of feelings if they're having that in a workout? That's an excellent question because I think trying to balance your blood sugar is really like a foundation for overall, like good nutrition. So when you eat food, and your body breaks down glucose, that causes the sugar in your blood to increase. So to counteract that high spike of blood sugar, your pancreas then releases insulin. So you have normal blood sugar reactions. When you just have glucose and it's broken down really quickly, your blood sugar is going to spike fast. Your body is going to flood you with insulin. And a lot of times that causes a low blood sugar crash. So in order to better maintain your blood sugar, you want to pair a carbohydrate source with a protein, because as we talked about before, your body breaks down protein slower. So the carb and the protein digestion are going to take a little longer. So it's going to maintain your overall blood sugar. So in order to avoid that crash during a workout, you want to try and pair your carbon protein about two hours before you work out. Um, and then during a workout, it depends on the length and the intensity of it. Um, but I know for me personally, if I'm working out longer than an hour with high intensity, I'm going to have a, a, a snack. 
So if I'm running for like two hours at that one hour mark, I like to have like an applesauce packet or some craisins. Some people like to use the gels or gummies or things of that nature. Yeah. So I think maybe what's happening in that situation typically um, is people are maybe not planning ahead of far enough before the workout where they're like, Oh man, I should have eaten something. So let me eat this like 30 minutes before my workout. And then they have too much of whatever it is and only a simple carbohydrate where again, they have that really big spike and then they drop out from there versus Mm -hmm. if I planned ahead a little bit better, I had some carbs and protein, um, that was maybe a little bit less refined. So it sticks with you a little bit better. Um, and doesn't have this big wave of blood sugar. And that way you can kind of have a smoother entry into your session. And then if you need to, you can maybe supplement that with like more sips of maybe Gatorade or like a, a simpler sugar along the way. And that way, if you sip it versus like guzzle it 30 minutes before, again, the same sort of thing, like you're probably gonna have some waving, but it'll probably hold a little bit more steady than if you just have a big dose all at once. Does that logic hold up at all? Yeah, that was a really good way of summarizing all that information. And I'd also like to point out when we talk about, you mentioned this a little bit, when we talk about carbohydrates, there are simple carbohydrates and complex carbohydrates. So simple is your processed white sugar, white flour, and complex carbohydrates have more nutrients and they have more fiber in them. So this would be your whole grains and your brown rice and oatmeal and things of that nature. And because of the added nutrients and fiber, it takes longer for your body to digest those carbohydrates, which are again, going to help stabilize and maintain an optimal blood sugar. Cool. That's helpful that I'm not completely crazy. (laughs) So I think you kind of covered the the intra workout a little bit where it's like, Hey, you're obviously going to hydrate during that time. You're probably going to replace with some sodium. Like you mentioned before, you're also mm-hmm. probably going to get some more carbohydrates, especially if it's something that is a longer effort. Um, or again, if you're having multiple bouts of whatever it is, like the long intervals where you may have some rest time, obviously you can eat or drink during your rest time. It's something that's something that you're going to be able to tolerate. Um, mm-hmm. as we get to the end of the workout, uh, what, do you think maybe would be a best practice in terms of macronutrient breakdown and types of foods that someone might be eating exiting a session? Absolutely. After a workout, you want to get fuel in your body within an hour of exercising. And you also want to pair your carb and your protein in that snack or whatever you're eating. Um, So what's happening after your workout, you likely used a lot of glucose to fuel your workout. And when you are eating sources of carbohydrates that get broken down into glucose, whatever isn't used as energy right away is stored as glycogen in your muscles. So a lot of times when you have a longer or an intense workout, your body is using that glycogen from your muscles to help support your workout. So once that's over, we need to replenish your muscles with glucose, which is then stored as glycogen. So you want good sources of carbohydrates, and then you also want a good source of protein that's going to help repair muscles that might have been broken down. So we want to support that muscle growth uh, moving forward right after your workout. So this could look like, I like to drink milk personally. I, a lot of, I know stereotypically people drink chocolate milk because it's a good source of carb and protein and chocolate milk has sodium in it. Um, Because it got marketed for a while. (laughs) 
Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no, but I think, yeah, again, if you just think about what's in milk, you know, it's some protein and there's probably yeah. maybe, I don't know, two to one of that of like maybe 200% of that grams of that and carbs, maybe I'm guessing. Um, yeah. but it's, you know, a, probably a pretty good ratio in terms of like what you're looking for, for recovery. I remember, I forget where I heard this from, but you know, anything from like a, a one to two to like a one to four protein to carb ratio. And I think some people who are maybe in like the bodybuilding world would go significantly lower than that, where they don't add much, many carbs in or like go like one to one ratio where it's about equal carbs and protein. Have you thought about that at all or any words of advice there? So I'm a big advocate of carbs. I know there's been a lot of like media that kind of say that carbs are bad, especially if you want to like build muscle or lose weight, but your body is mainly fueled by carbohydrates, especially your brain. And when you don't um, fuel your body with enough carbohydrates, your body finds other ways to do that. So it will actually break down muscle or it will break down fat and turn that into carbohydrates to fuel your body. So at minimum, you want to make sure you're getting enough carbs and then you can um, add more protein if you want to for bodybuilding. Um, so when we think of like percentages, I like to have like 45% carbohydrates and then like 30% protein and then... Are you saying generally throughout your day or are you saying post-workout? I would say um, those percentages are generally throughout the day, but then also post-workout as well. Gotcha. Yeah. I think most people don't understand. Well, you know, if you just, I think most people intuitively probably would think that you need carbs after workout because that's the primary fuel source. But for some reason that maybe it's just that they've been marketed to, they think that like, yeah. oh, I have to have all of this protein. It's like, yeah, you're turning over some muscle mass and like having some amount of, you know, micro tearing and, you know, you know, basically de destroying your muscle to a certain extent, but you're not having like this severe doms every single time you work out where you're just like crippled from your, your soreness. <laughs> like, I think again, for most people, you know, especially if you are someone who's having some metabolic work that you're doing with your running, you know, your weight training, you're doing something like that. Like you have to replace that with carbs. Mm-hmm. I'll get off my pedestal now, my, my soapbox, <laughs> my rants over. Okay. One more thing that I want to pick your brain on is, so we talked about timing around mealtime specifically. Um, let's talk about before bed, because this is another thing that I think maybe doesn't get talked about enough where, especially if someone is, you know, a busy individual, or maybe they just enjoy having an evening snack or whatever, and they end up like basically eating right up until they go to bed. Uh, is that a problem? So if you're eating before bed, my first question would be, like, what is the motivation behind why you're eating before bed? Um, so are you actually hungry? If you Man, are hungry. No, I'm watching it because I'm watching TV <laughs> and I just want my ice cream when I watch TV. Go ahead. We can continue. So if you're actually hungry, like we want to think about why are you hungry this late in the evening? Have you eaten throughout the day and have you eaten enough throughout the day? So if you're consistently hungry and overeating at night, we may want to look at trying to add another snack during the day or like eating more meals during the day, especially breakfast. I'm a big advocate of eating breakfast to fueling yourself 
right when you wake up. And a lot of studies do show that people who eat breakfast have lower BMIs overall, just because you're adequately fueling yourself at normal intervals and you're not overeating later on. Um, Also, if you're eating late at night, is there like a stress eating component to this? And if there is, like, you might want to dive a little deeper and figure out like what's causing the stress and yeah. do a little figure that out before just going um, right to your snacks. Cause that's not uh, the best practice. Yeah. I think this probably points out maybe a hole for me is like how I was like, okay, what is the scientific answer behind what she's going to give? And I was like, you know, sometimes it's, it's way simpler than that. Like you don't need to understand mm-hmm. like, Oh, like your stomach should be cleared out so that you can have, um, optimal sleep waves and that you're not going to have, be trying to digest food when you're sleeping. Like, okay, that might be true. But for most people, it's like, you know, you don't need to eat it right up until you go to bed. Like, why are you doing that? Mm-hmm. And I think that's probably the question rather than why should you do it? It's like, why are you doing that? That was probably a way yeah. more important question to ask. Mm-hmm. I, I will say like, there are certain patient populations who could benefit from eating before bed. And that would be someone who is diabetic and needs to sustain blood sugar overnight or like adolescents, when you're going through a growth spurt, a lot of times, like the time from dinner to breakfast is too long um, without eating. Mm -hmm. Um, But when you are snacking before bed, what are you snacking on? We want to go back to our complex carbohydrate and protein combination to maintain your blood sugar throughout the night. Um, And then Also, just something to add, like when we talk about timing of meals with workouts and eating before bed, when do you work out? Because sometimes people work out right when they wake up before breakfast. So a lot of times you don't have enough time in the morning to adequately fuel yourself before you're going to the gym. Um, So in those instances, like you don't want to wake up, go to the gym and then have a blood sugar crash while you're working out. So in those instances, it could be helpful to have like yogurt and almonds within an hour or two going to bed. So you're not waking up starving and totally glucose depleted. Yeah. I really like that. Like, you know, get some like long lasting forms of food that are going to stick with you for a long time that aren't going to also fill up your gut. So like an almond is super calorically dense and just nutrient dense as a whole. And it's a fat source mainly. So mm-hmm. it's going to stick with you for a really long time. And when you wake up in the morning, you're not, you're going to feel like you have more stable blood sugar and that you're not like, you're a little bit more satiated. You don't feel like you're like dying. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Cool. So for person who is maybe trying to I actually want to take a step back here, if so, you're thinking about someone who maybe is, you know, in a growth spurt or, um, and they're trying to just like fuel themselves optimally, or maybe someone who's, um, even trying to like gain weight where they're just like eating more frequently around the clock. Are there any best practices and just trying to like, okay, I'm trying to get more fuel in throughout the day. Is it just like, just eat a little bit more to share meals or is there other maybe times where they could pockets of time where it might be best to add in some extra calories? I would recommend like adding meal frequency. If you're trying to like add more nutrients or gain weight. Um, so in those instances, I like to have breakfast, snack, lunch, snack, dinner, and sometimes even a snack at night and make sure you're uh, adding foods that have 
that are calorically dense, but also nutrient dense as well. So like nuts are really nutrient dense, but they also have um, a lot of calories as well. So like peanut butter um, and apples would be a good idea. And then if you're an adolescent trying to gain weight and you want to have some like fun desserts every once in a while, (laughs) there's like, I'm all about food in moderation. Um, You don't want to restrict and think really negatively about a food because food is fun and it's delicious. So you want to celebrate it as well. Yeah. I think it is easy if you're someone who's like me and you have this, you know, performance mindset around your food intake. It's really easy to be like, you look at food and it's just like, oh, you see carbs, protein and fat. You see like the, the micronutrients there. And, and it's like, it's real easy for it to, to become a chore to feel like you're mm-hmm. eating and fueling yourself rather than something that it can be enjoyable and life-sustaining and social and all these other aspects as well. So that that's a good reminder. All right. Final question for you. Um, I think in a conversation like this, it's really easy for someone listening to just be like, get, you know, paralysis by analysis, right. Where it's like, there's so much thrown at them where it's like, I don't know what to do. So they end up, you know, turning off the podcast and not doing anything. If you've like one piece of advice for somebody listening, it's like, Hey, I heard all these different things. Like, Hey, just, you know, start here. You know, what (laughs) maybe would be a good place to start? Yeah, I would, I like to sum up my like five years of education into one sentence of eat variety of foods in moderation that include complex carbohydrates, lean protein, and fruits and vegetables. So my advice would be when you're going down to have a meal, look at your plate and does it have color on it? Does it have a variety of nutrients? And it's really easy to get lost in like percentages and numbers. But if you look at your plate and about half is colorful with fruits and vegetables and the other half is a mixture of a lean protein and a complex carb, you're likely getting nutrients that you need. Awesome. It's a good recommendation. Easy place (laughs) to start. Like, hey, look at your meal. It looks good. You've got all your food groups there. You've got some color. You're good to go. Yeah. And like, let's focus on what you can add. So if there's not a lot of color, what can we add instead of trying to like take away and restrict? Yeah. Getting away from the restrictive mindset. Mm-hmm. I love it. Sarah, thanks for doing this today. Thanks for having me. I had a great time. I love talking about food and nutrition. Hey, it's Ben again. Thanks for listening today. To be completely honest, it's been really rewarding to have people who listen to the show regularly reach out to me, whether they have a question about training or just to say, hey. So if you haven't done that yet, do it. I'm pretty good about getting back to people and you can feel free to email me, ben at sorefitness.com or message me on Instagram at sorefitness. And graciously, I've had some people reach out to me and ask how they can support the show. Number one way that you can support the show if you are a regular listener is just by rating the show. Most apps have a platform where you can actually rate it and on Apple Podcasts, you can write a review as well. This is super helpful in having other coaches and athletes find the podcast, but also just having it grow and for me to continue to want to put out more and more content. Also, I'm going to be posting more full episodes of the Fitness Movement to our YouTube channel. So if you're someone who actually enjoys seeing my face when I talk, you can head over to YouTube and subscribe if you please. And if you're someone who is watching on YouTube, you have the ability to like our videos, but then you can also comment on the video 
if you have questions about the episode or if you want to suggest a topic for a future episode. And lastly, if you're someone who really does value what we're putting out, I would encourage you to hire a coach. For me, coaching is the bulk of my job and it's what I believe I do best. So if you're an athlete or a coach looking to up your fitness game, be sure to reach out. You can message me on Instagram at Zor Fitness or email me ben at zorfitness.com. Thanks again for listening today. And as always, stay the course.